Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. So every relationship has its deal breakers, right? Like those non-negotiables that need to be addressed pretty early on in the relationship. I remember when Lindsay and I were dating, it was like our, our second date. It was very early on. I wanted to get ahead of this. I told her I had, had two deal breakers, like two non-negotiables in my relationships. One is I wanted to be there when she picked out the dress, uh, the wedding dress, because I'm ridiculous. Uh, and two, no pets ever because I'm sensible. Uh, uh, she, she had a dog at the time, so she didn't take me seriously. Uh, but I will tell you, I was there to pick out the dress. Uh, but these, these deal breakers are important. You want to like get, get out ahead of them early on because you don't want to like fall in love with somebody only down the road to like have your lives enmeshed together and find out like they install the toilet paper the wrong direction. That's, that's a deal breaker. I came across some of these, uh, these deal breakers on Twitter. I don't really know how to use Twitter, but I know how to use Google. So I found these uh, through Google. But here's one of them. It says, uh, imagine, uh, imagine finding your soulmate and discovering that he or she is a pen clicker. Like, what, you're just going to be annoyed for the rest of your life? Or, or try this one. Can you imagine falling in love with someone, their personality, their smile, their laugh, and then they tell you that their favorite movie is Grown Ups too? It's like, <laughs> oh, that's a taste issue there. Uh, imagine falling in love with someone and then finding out that they argue in celebrity Instagram comments with people they don't even know. Uh, I, I, I do that. I get caught up. I'm so bad. I get caught up in the comments of these, like, sections sometimes. I don't, I don't contribute, but I just, my mind is blown away how, like, people are, who are these people? Uh, I, don't, I, I know none of you are these people, I'm sure, but who are, uh, imagine, I love this one, imagine finding, uh, falling in love with someone and finding out they stand up in the aisle as soon as the plane lands. Because like that's going to get you off the plane quicker. Or here, this is the antithesis of me. New boyfriend is allergic to kittens, so can't keep him. He's ginger and named Tom, friendly, comes when called, 28 years old, works in IT. <laughs> But these, these deal breakers, these non-negotiables, these are these key issues that even if everything else feels right, if everything else is going smoothly, if it seems promising, if these details are out of place, if these questions go unanswered, the whole thing falls apart. These are those deal breaker questions. They, they, they stop it in its tracks. And here we're getting to the end of our series that we've been calling Supernatural Power for Everyday People. And we've been going through for almost a year now, going verse by verse through 1 Corinthians. And Paul is about to wrap up the letter. And it seems like he should be done. He's going to, you know, in the next chapter, give his farewell sign-off speech. But before he does, he, he feels compelled to talk about this deal-breaker issue. That there is a question that is lurking that if, if we can't find an answer to this question, he says, everything else is pointless. Like the whole letter, throw it in the garbage. If you can't answer this one question, he, he goes as far as to say it's vain or it's futile if we can't answer this one question. The question for him, this deal breaker question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Did Jesus rise from the dead? And he, he says, if Jesus rose from the dead, he's going to raise us too. We have this incredible hope. But if Jesus didn't raise from, rise from the dead, 
this is all pointless. Like, I'm wasting your time right now. This is, listen to what Paul says about this. He says, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, he says, our preaching is useless. His preaching, my preaching, Robert's preaching, Justin's maybe is still like uh, valuable, but uh, his preaching, our preaching is useless. And he goes even farther. He says, and so is your faith. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, our preaching, your faith is useless. A couple verses later, he says, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those, who, uh, also, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And he puts a nice bow on it. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is his deal breaker question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? He says it's, it's pointless if we can't answer this one question. And, and can we even ask that question? 2,000 years later, can we know with any certainty that Jesus actually rose from the dead? And the only way to, to try and answer that question is to go back to the, the early claims that Jesus rose from the dead. And we actually get one of the earliest claims to Jesus' resurrection right here in the same chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes this. He shares this with the Corinthians. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. This is the most important thing. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, that's his Greek name, Peter, uh, and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' half-brother, and then to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Abnormally born because he had a, a unique kind of faith story, which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. But here we get this, this very uh, assertive claim that Jesus rose from the dead, and we have to, to figure out what this means. And there, there's only a few options. If he's not telling the truth, there's only a few options. That these, these claims are coming from liars, people that are just making it up. Or they're, they're lunatics. They're just irrational, right? Like they, they really believe it happened, but it didn't. Or these are the thing of legend. But they weren't, there weren't any real like claims to the resurrection early on. So I want to take some time to go through some of these and, and examine the evidence a little bit with you. Hypothesis number one, they were lying. Maybe Paul is just making the whole thing up and the other apostles and these hundreds of people that claim to have seen Jesus raised from the dead. Maybe they were just lying, making it up. And when you, you think about that through the lens of the 21st century and our like televangelists and all of that, it kind of seems plausible. We see people today, you know, using good things like the gospel to manipulate people and these little old ladies and to maxing out their credit cards to help them buy private jets and $1,000 sneakers and all of that. Like, people will lie for money all the time. Like, maybe they were making it up. But as you consider the actual evidence, this starts to, to fall apart pretty quickly. Because first of all, they had nothing to gain. It wasn't like they were becoming rich and powerful and famous. It was quite the opposite. 
They were becoming poor. They were becoming outcasts. They were losing everything. Some of their own families were turning on them. They lost their homes, their reputations. Not only did they they lose everything in this capacity, but it got to the point where there was aggressive persecution, and most of them even gave their lives for it. Most of them gave their lives claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, people don't die for a lie. Hear me out real quick, though, because people die for things that aren't true all the time. Every religion, every cult has its martyrs, people that will go to the grave asserting, this is true, this is true. Uh, And it might not be true, but if they're willing to die for it, it, it does mean that they believe it's true. All right, And so you could conceivably say there are these followers of Jesus that believed in his ideology and they wanted to cling to that ideology and they wanted to give their lives to that ideology. But that's not what happened. They didn't give their lives because of an ideology. They gave their lives because of an event. They saw Jesus die, was buried for three days, and then they saw him alive again. And then they spent the rest of their lives clinging to that, clinging to that, proclaiming that even when they were being persecuted, tortured, and killed, they refused to let go of the lie. And even if you could imagine like maybe two or three being, you know, twisted enough to be able to hold on to a lie in the midst of this for for the hundreds of people to do this, it's implausible. It's not even, it's not even possible. Chuck Colson, I think he said it the best. Chuck Colson, anybody know who Chuck Colson is? So Chuck Colson was special counsel to Richard Nixon, and he was, uh, like, played a central role in Watergate. Uh, he was not one of the good guys. Uh, and then he went to prison, and he, he found Jesus in prison, life-transforming situation, came to realize Jesus rose from the dead. He actually, after he got out of prison, spent his whole life going back into prisons to minister to prisons. Like, people don't get out of prison and then voluntarily spend their whole lives going back into prison until, of course, they meet the resurrected Jesus and come to believe that there's a better hope, right? But he says his experience with Watergate was one of the reasons that he was convinced Jesus rose from the dead. Look at what he says. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They wouldn't have endured it. They wouldn't have endured that if it weren't true. He goes on to say, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Right? It's just, it's, it's not plausible, it's not realistic that even if they wanted to, they could maintain a lie this long. So at the very least, at the very least, we have to say they believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And so maybe they believed it, but maybe they were irrational. So maybe they genuinely believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That doesn't mean Jesus actually rose from the dead. They could have had a few screw loose, screws loose. And uh, of course, of course, the, the story goes like this, all right? So you have the, the disciples, you know, and they're simple-minded fishermen, and they're grief-stricken. They've been following Jesus around. He was their rabbi. He was their hope, and now he's dead, and they're, they're just full of all of these sorrowful emotions, and they heard some things that, oh, maybe he could rise from the dead, and then they start to want that, and now with all of the emotion and everything like that, they start to think they see Jesus rise from the dead, and they convince themselves and each other, other, uh, and, each other and other people that they saw Jesus rise from the dead. 
That's kind of how the, the story goes. And it, it sounds nice, but again, as you, you take a closer look, you start to realize this too is impossible. First off, there are too many witnesses and too many occurrences and too many different kinds of occurrences. There's Jesus showing up to individuals. There's Jesus showing up to two people. There's Jesus showing up to 12 people, to 500 people. All of these different situations. And, and you can't have group hallucinations, right? Like, I can't convince all of you at one time to have the same mind trip, right? Even if I like were to drug you and try to make that happen, you'd walk away with your own individual trips. Uh, you would not have all had the same hallucination. But here we have groups of people having the same hallucination. And it just, it, it's implausible for that to happen. But then, then you, you take this idea of them being simple-minded, and it's, it's also just not true. Take Paul, for instance, all right? So let's say, let's say Peter and John, they were simple fishermen. Paul wasn't. Paul was a brilliant intellect. We know that just from his position and his status and his life, but even if you just read the things that he wrote, you can tell that Paul had a towering intellect. His ability to reason through complex issues and, and dissect them and make them accessible shows that he was a brilliant mind. In fact, Paul still shows up on most of the like, world's top uh, 100 most influential people of all time. He actually shows up in the top 10 on most of those lists because he was a brilliant mind, right? He was not a simpleton, and he wasn't grief-stricken. Paul, he, he mentioned that he was abnormally born because, of course, Paul was not a follower of Jesus. Paul was hostile to the whole Jesus movement. When Paul heard about Jesus being crucified, he would have cheered for that. And then it was literally his job to hunt down Christians, to persecute them, to put them in prison, to see them stoned to death as heretics. This was his job. And then the next thing you know, he's praising Jesus. All right, imagine, just imagine for a second, you wake up tomorrow morning and you find out, you turn on the news, you find out that Donald Trump called a press conference. And he says, guys, I was wrong about everything. I, yeah, and, and then all of a sudden he starts praising Biden. And he says, I, you know, I'm so glad he's president right now and not me. He's the right man for the job. I'm 100% behind the Biden-Harris ticket. I can't wait for 2024 so I can give them my official endorsement. That situation, that scenario right there is more likely than the Apostle Paul going from this murderous rage, literally trying to kill Christians, to becoming the most influential missionary of all time. And all of this turned around for Paul because he said one event happened. He met the resurrected Jesus. He wasn't grief-stricken. He wasn't simple-minded. He was a well-educated, secure person who saw Jesus and everything changed. Take James. James is the half-brother of Jesus. When Jesus was doing his ministry and starting to like, claim that he's the son of God and stuff, Jesus and uh, Jesus' half-brothers and other family members started to think that Jesus was losing it a little bit. Uh, like They wanted to rein him in. They're like, all right, you're going too far. Like, Come back. You know, this is not cool. Like, they kind of thought Jesus was the one who was a little bit irrational. Uh, and then the next thing you know, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is leading the church in Jerusalem. He's like the leader of the church in Jerusalem. In fact, we have a letter that James wrote. We have a letter that James wrote. And in that letter, he called Jesus, his brother, 
his glorious Lord. I have brothers. Uh, anybody have a brother? Okay. What would it take for your brother to convince you that he is your glorious Lord? All right? Now, now, to put it in perspective, imagine it's a brother that you already think has a history of kind of, you know, being a few fries short of a Happy Meal, and now you're going to call him your glorious Lord. And all of this changed for James because he saw Jesus die, spend three days in a tomb, and was alive again. This wasn't an irrational hallucination. It wasn't a simple-minded man becoming grief-stricken and wanting this. This was a skeptic. He thought this is how it was going to end, only to find out he couldn't be more wrong. As you, you start to examine the, the actual evidence, you realize you can't chalk it up to a few of them being irrational, especially when you, you throw in the persecution again. All right? There are times where I'm certain things happened. Like, I remember, like, it happened this way, and somebody's like, are you sure it happened that way? I'm like, I'm, I'm like, positive it happened that way. I'm really confident it happened that way. But if they held a gun to my head, I'd be like, all right, maybe I was wrong. <laughs> all right? But here you have all of these people that are so confident in what they saw, so confident in what they saw that they aren't questioning it even when they're being tortured and brutally murdered for these claims. We can't chalk it up to them simply being irrational. It doesn't hold weight. But there's another uh, explanation, another hypothesis, and that is the hypothesis that Jesus is a legend. That, you know, maybe Jesus, and this is kind of the, the whole idea behind it, that maybe Jesus was a good moral teacher. He was a charismatic leader. He had a following, and he, he really inspired people with some of his moral teachings, and that over time, after Jesus died, over time, rumors started to pick up about how he lived and you know legends start to pick up and this happens you know it's kind of like George Washington's cherry tree that you know you know the story George Washington I can never tell a lie chopping down the cherry tree turns out that's not a real story somebody just made it up because they were trying to show that George Washington is an honest person right and so this this happens so maybe it happened with Jesus maybe the the miracles and the rising from the dead these were just things that happened grew over time because especially when you take the gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John. These are kind of the biographies of Jesus' work and his life, death, and resurrection. These biographies were written years later. Mark is probably the earliest written one, and it, it might have been dated as late as 65 AD. So that's, that's a big time. So if Jesus died in around 30 AD, and Mark is writing the gospel in 35 AD, that's three and a half decades. That's like almost as old as me. Don't laugh, because that's true, okay? Uh, it's 35 years, and Mark was written in Greek. We don't know who it was written to. It could have been written to an audience that was hundreds of miles away. So you could start to think, all right, maybe Jesus was just some good moral teacher. And over time, after his death, people just came up with these other stories to bolster the weight of his moral teaching. And it seems plausible, but when you, you consider the evidence again, you realize this, this doesn't hold water. In fact, this is a, probably one of the most popular explanations that I hear when I talk to people today, I, like this whole legend thing, but it only exists at a popular level. What I mean is like you can find blogs about it in the same way that you can find blogs about like there being a flat earth, uh, but there's no like scholars or historians that actually give credence to this. 
even like, I'm, I'm not talking about Christian scholars. I'm talking about secular scholars, atheists, and agnostics don't even say that this holds weight, this idea that it's just a legend. And, and one of the reasons is because of this very passage that we're looking at. So this section here where Paul says, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, is actually one of the, the most important documents that we have about the history of the resurrection. And I want to share real quick, I want to share five facts about this passage that scholars and historians agree upon, whether they're like atheists or agnostics or Christians. Five facts that everyone agrees upon about this. First, this is an an authoritative historical document. So this section here, by authoritative, it's not like they're saying that it's scripture, like authoritative in that way. I'm sorry, I think my mic keeps hitting my face. Uh, They're not saying authoritative as in like it's the word of God because obviously a secular scholar would never say that. When they say authoritative, what they they mean is Paul wrote this. This was written by the apostle Paul and he is a credible witness, all right? So it's authoritative in that regard. We also know that Paul wrote this sometime between 55 and 57 AD, all right? So let's say it's 56 AD. So already we're getting a little bit closer to the events, right? But still, 26 years, that's, that's a good amount of time. And this is written in Corinth, which is very far from where these events actually took place. But there's something else that we know, is that Paul is not telling this to the Corinthians for the first time. Actually, if you read the passage, he says, I, I passed this on to you. He's actually recounting something that he passed on to them when he visited them. And we know from other historical documents, Paul visited them in 51 AD. So this chunk, this testimony about Jesus dying and rising again, Paul shared this with them first in 51 AD. So now, now we're getting a little bit closer. Now we're 21 years after the events. Just to kind of give you a frame of reference for that, we're coming up on the 21st anniversary of 9-11 next month. So that's what 21 years of time looks like. And you can kind of see... Well, yes, that's a lot of time for rumors and things to start, but it's not, it's not that far off. But it gets even better. The second fact that we know about this is that it's a creed. That's important. When you, you might not notice it in the English because it just kind of reads like everything else, but in the, the original Greek, it has a meter and a rhythm to it that this was a creed, kind of like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. This was an early Christian creed that was packaged so that people could remember it. And that's what, what creeds do is that they kind of take these ideas and they distill them down into something that's easily transferable. For instance, we have a mission at Beacon, Right? What is our mission? Pop quiz. What's our mission? Uh, All right. That was good. I think we could do better. Uh, One more time. Yeah, there you go. That is our, that's our mission statement. But, you know, we we package that down because it's it's concise. It's easily transferable to be able to tell what we're about. And so this statement, this right here is a creed. Okay, that it's something that people put work into. Uh, The third fact about this is that we know that creeds are core beliefs. Creeds are core beliefs. And they might be like, of course they're core beliefs. But, But this is an important detail. Because right at the center of this, right at the center of this, of first importance, he says, is the resurrection. So if if Jesus was simply a good moral teacher presenting a good ideology for the world, 
then at the core of this creed would be Jesus' good moral teachings. And if the resurrection and the miracles, if all of that was just to bolster Jesus' teaching and ideology, then... Did I fix it? All right. <laughs> uh, then the, the resurrection would kind of be at the periphery. But here in this passage, the resurrection is the message. It's not like a supporting character in this show. It's the main character. You get rid of the resurrection, there is no creed. It's at the very center. And if you even read through the, the rest of the New Testament, you see that all of the New Testament writings, they have a way of actually downplaying Jesus as a moral teacher and elevating this one central feature, Jesus rose from the dead. Because the resurrection is the message. There is no creed without the resurrection. N.T. Wright, he's a New Testament scholar, he says, for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is the heart of the gospel. It's the object of faith, the ground of justification, the basis for obedient Christian living, the motivation for unity, and not least, the challenge to the principalities and powers. Right? The resurrection is the message. It's, it's the centerpiece of this creed. If something else if the resurrection was just supporting something else, that would be the centerpiece of the creed, right? With George Washington's cherry tree, that story is told to support George Washington and, and you know, try to give us some sense that he was, had this good moral fiber. It was not told so that we'd start worshiping the stump of the tree, right? That's the comparison. Here, no, the resurrection is the message. Number four, this creed was received around 35 A.D., all right, notice what he says here. He says, what I received, I passed on to you. So Paul didn't write this creed for the Corinthians. This is a creed that he received. And from his other historical documents, we know when Paul received this. We get a kind of timeline of Paul's life a little bit. Paul came to have his experience with the resurrected Jesus about two years after Jesus died. All right, two years after that. And then he went into the wilderness for a few years. Presumably to, to study and learn, but also probably for safety reasons, because he couldn't go home, because... He tried to kill Christians. He knew a lot of people. All of his friends wanted to kill him at this point. And all the Christians weren't really sure who he was. Like, maybe this was a ploy. So he, he goes off into the wilderness for a few years. And then, three years later, in 35 AD, he comes back to Jerusalem. And we're told that he spent 15 days with Peter and James. Could you just imagine being a fly on the wall? 15 days, just the three of them hanging out. You have Peter, who is this flaky follower who just hours before Jesus' death denied him, sharing his experience of seeing Jesus alive again. You have James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a skeptic, thought his brother was crazy, talking about his experience of seeing Jesus alive again. Paul, who was hostile to the Christian faith, talking about his experience of seeing Jesus alive again. People from all walks of life coming together to say, all right, what are we going to do? Because Jesus lives. And Paul walked away from that meeting with those three guys with this creed. All right, so this creed was already in circulation in 35 AD and in Jerusalem. So now it's not hundreds of miles away, decades later. We're talking five years after the events in the city where the events happened. Right? That's a whole heck of a lot closer, right? But we're still not done. This fifth fact is that creeds aren't written overnight. 
takes a little while for a creed to, to be written. You don't even think in terms of creeds right off the bat. You're just kind of talking these ideas. And after you talk about them over and over and over again, you say, all right, we need to kind of put this thing together, right? And for instance, it took us 12 years, 12 years to come up with Beacon's mission statement. I know you're thinking, you're like, it took you 12 years to come up with that. Uh, but I, I know, but we went through different iterations. It took us 12 years to kind of distill it down to what it is today. It takes time for creeds to be formulated. And this creed in particular, you'll notice twice, he talks about things happening in accordance with the scriptures, right? Now, that meant they had to, after the resurrection, take the time to go back and study the Old Testament scriptures to find out, wait a second, Wait, the, the Old Testament was predicting the death and resurrection of Jesus? Because nobody saw this coming until it happened. And then they went back. And then they studied the scriptures. And then they saw how all of these pieces come together. And that takes time, which is why most scholars, not just Christian scholars, but secular scholars, agree that the resurrection claims, the first resurrection claims can be traced back almost all the way to the events. Within days, weeks, or at most months after these happen. So the time for these things to kind of grow into legend over time, that is a myth that no serious scholar holds to. In fact, look at what some of the secular scholars say. So uh, here, Dale Allison, he, uh, he is agnostic about the whole resurrection thing. He says, although I think the tomb was probably empty, although I'm sure, look, at, I'm sure the disciples saw Jesus after his death, and although I would be personally delighted to spy dramatic divine intervention in the world, I remain unconvinced, right? So he says, I'm not convinced that Jesus rose from the dead, but I'm sure the disciples saw Jesus, all right? Uh, uh, it may be, so here, uh, Gerd Ludeman, uh, another uh, kind of agnostic secular scholar about the, the resurrection, he says, it may be taken as historically certain, historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Historical fact that they had some sort of experience. Here, E.P. Sanders, another agnostic, he says, Jesus, that Jesus' followers, and later Paul, had a resurrection experience is in, is, in my judgment, a fact. What the reality that gave rise to that experience, I don't know, because he won't go out and say it was the resurrection, but he says they definitely had an experience. Or here, Bart Ehrman, who's probably one of the most vocal atheists about uh, you know, like talking about Jesus and trying to debunk Jesus, all of that. Look, look at what he says. He says, historians, of course, have no difficulty whatsoever speaking about the belief in Jesus' resurrection, since this is a matter of public record. For it is a historical fact that some of Jesus' followers came to believe that he had been raised from the dead soon after his execution. Or one more from Ehrman. All right, he says, finally, we know that after his death, his followers experienced what they described as the resurrection the appearance of a living but transformed person who had actually died. They believed this, they lived it, and they died for it. All right, so was it just a legend? No. <laughs> there is no evidence that supports that Jesus was just a legend, that the resurrection was something that built up over time. Even the secular scholars say that, that is, there, there's just nothing to support that. It is a historical fact that the disciples had an experience that they believed Jesus was alive again from the dead soon after these things happened. If you, you talk to all of these kind of agnostics and atheists about the resurrection and why they could be so confident that these experiences happened and be so confident that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they will tell you it's because people can't rise from the dead. 
they, they actually go into it with this, this bias saying, well, the resurrection can't be what happened, and so I have to come up with another explanation. And very often, they don't have another explanation. They just say, all I know is Jesus didn't rise from the dead, even though all the evidence points there. And if you're willing to, you could land on the fact that Jesus is alive. He's alive. And we can actually have confidence that Jesus is alive. This isn't some fairy tale. This isn't some historical thing that, you know, some piece of information that got lost in history and we're like just counting on hearsay and like 2,000 years of the telephone. Game. No, we can have confidence. Jesus is alive. And if you're, you're here today and you're kind of on the fence about this whole thing and you're not sure if you believe Jesus rose from the dead and all of that, first off, I want to say, so glad that you're here. We love that you, you think Beacon is a, a safe place to explore these things and we want to continue to be that place for you. But if that's where you're at, I want to encourage you, examine the evidence. We have some resources in our resource center. A couple books in particular I'd highly recommend. Mark Clark's uh, The Problem of God and... Uh, uh, Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ. Both of these guys started doing their research from the position of atheism and came to find the evidence shows Jesus rose from the dead. And, and if you're a skeptic, I encourage you to, to look into to some of those resources for yourself. But I'd also, I'd also encourage you, if you haven't done it, read through the New Testament. Start at the beginning, read the Gospels, read through the, the letters, and just with an open mind, read it and see what happens. But for, for most of us, we probably are here today because we believe Jesus rose from the dead. And so this is kind of an encouragement and it's a refresher and we're kind of happy to hear, yes, Jesus is alive and we'd be confident about that. But if that's where you're at, the question I want to ask you and I want to challenge you with this is, is your life worth pitying? I know that's a, a weird question, but Paul said that if he got to the end of his life and it turned out that there is no resurrection, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead and he's not going to rise from the dead, that his life is worth pitying, right? We have all people are most to be pitied by the, the rest of the world. If there's no resurrection, like Paul was going to go to his high school reunion and people were going to be like, oh man, what a shame. Paul had so much promise, you know? People are going to look at, at Paul's LinkedIn profile and be like, oh, man, I used to work with that guy. He, he could have been so much. And you know what they did? They pitied him. They thought he wasted his life. And he says, if the resurrection isn't true, it's true. He wasted his life. But, of course, if the resurrection is true, then he devoted himself to what really matters. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to live a pitiable life uh, to be honest, I want to live an enviable life. I want people to see what I'm doing and be like, I want to be like Trevor. But at the very least, I want to live a respectable life. Right? I want to have a respectable house and a respectable career and respectable hobbies and respectable vacations and a respectable retirement. And I want, I want it to be respectable from the rest of the world. And yet, yet you and I are here today and we believe in the resurrection. We know Jesus rose from the dead because 2,000 years ago, there was a group of Christians who said, I'm, I'm willing to abandon a respectable life. I'm willing to live a pitiable life from the perspective of the world so that we might know that Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty and we have hope because they said, I will live a pitiable life and I will abandon myself to the resurrection. Are you willing to do that? 
I have, I have kids now, plural, which is still weird to, to say, kids. Uh, and I just, I, I get the, the gravitational pull of the world to just want to give them a respectable life. To want to, you know, provide all the best experiences and, and help them make good choices along the way so that they can have all the things that this life has to offer. And, uh, and I have to fight against that. I have to fight against that in myself because at the end of the day, if I want my kids to learn anything from me, if I want them to see anything from my life, I want them to learn and see that I am convinced Jesus rose from the dead, right? Is that the picture that your kids are gonna get from your life? And if you don't have kids, is the next generation looking to you, is that the picture that they're seeing from your life, that your life is telling them, oh, no, no, we're a generation that's convinced Jesus is alive and he's gonna come back for us. Is that the, the, the message that our lives are portraying? Because the, the statistics are telling us we're, we're losing the next generation. They're walking away in droves. And, and it makes you wonder, are they watching us abandon ourselves to the resurrection? Or are they watching us abandon ourselves to the American dream? And learning from us that if, you know, they work hard and they make good choices and they could to have a respectable life and when they get old they can move to North Carolina and spend time with their grandkids. Or, or are they watching the generation ahead of them say, we're going to abandon that? We're not going to let the, the pattern of this world become the organizing principle of our life because we believe Jesus rose from the dead. And I don't want my kids to have a respectable life. I don't. I want them to embrace a pitiable life because 2,000 years from now, I want people to know Jesus lives. And it's going to start with us saying, not saying Jesus lives, but living like Jesus lives. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be a community that's willing to abandon ourselves to the resurrection so that the world around us will know Jesus is alive. That tomb is empty. And there is a hope that is better than anything this world has to offer. Let's pray. Father, we are, are so grateful that we get to be people of the resurrection, that that's our, our hope and our future. God, we're, we're grateful for the, the women and men who have gone before us to, who abandoned themselves to the resurrection so that we would today know Jesus lives. God, and I, I pray that your spirit would do that transforming work in us. Not that we'd be guilted into anything, but that we would see that we have a better hope and we would pursue that, abandoning all else, willing to be pitied, pitied by the rest of the world if we're wrong but knowing we're right Jesus lives and he's coming back for us God I pray that the world will know Jesus lives because he can see they can see Jesus alive in us and we pray this in Jesus name if you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.